Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today I've got a really interesting guest. I think this is going to be uh, a really compelling conversation. It's something different than what we typically do on the show. But as we're recording in early August, very topical. And this person is a busy man. So I'm glad that he could carve out some time. I've got Do- Dr. Alex Jahangir. How are you, sir? Doing so well. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And so just to get this out in front, I've I've known Alex for a long time. He, he trained with my father-in-law. He works at Vanderbilt Medical Center, which my family has deep connections with. Our kids go to school together and he lives literally like around the corner from me. So we've known each other for a long time and I'm biased. I'm a huge fan. He's a very smart person, very hard worker and does everything he can to make sure that the people of Nashville are safe and healthy. And with that, why don't we go into a little bit of background because your story is, I think, intriguing and helps really provide context for the rest of the conversation. So maybe give a little bit of background on yourself and, and what you do as your day job. Yeah, so I am a um, orthopedic trauma surgeon. So, you know, I'm, I'm really good at fixing bo- broken bones. And often people come to Vanderbilt and become my patients have never met me. And that, that's my day job, right? In fact, I was on, I'm on call today and did two surgeries, somebody who got shot and somebody who got in a car wreck. And that's literally my normal day job. Then in October of 2019, actually a few years before that, in 2017, got a random call and asked if I'd want to be one of um, six members of the National Board of Health. 
with that, not really understand what that meant, but seeing it was kind of a neat appointed position by the mayor, I figured why not? So I went ahead and did that. And in October 2019, I became the chair of the Board of Health, mainly to do um, one thing, and that was to hire a new director of health because we had just had a, a change in leadership. My intention was to hire that director. And then a year later, when my term ends, to move on and come back to fixing bones. Well, we hired a director and he was to start on March 9th, 2020. <laughs> well, needless to say, that's a Monday, March 7th in the evening, the first case of COVID came in Nashville. March 8th this is a Sunday. We had a press conference where my job, I'd never even met the mayor, nor have I been to a press conference to even watch, much less participate. And the mayor asked me to just deliver a message of stay calm. We're going to get through this. And so I did. And the next thing you know, here we are about 18 months later, and I've been part of an amazing, amazing experience to help keep our community of Nashville specifically and it's gotten a little broader, you know, kind of get get us through this. And it's been a really neat experience. So let's rewind the tape a little bit, because when you joined that that board, what is the what is the purpose of that organization, both historically and in the modern sense? So the Board of Health was made in um, 63. And the reason that date sticks out, I think it's 63, it's the year is the first part of metro government, national metro government that became consolidated. And so the one, the first department was the was the Department of Health. And when that was put together, really interestingly, the director at the time was a gentleman named Dr. Lentz. And Lentz was very politically savvy, and he set up a entity within Metro government that reported directly to a board of directors rather than to the mayor, as every other department of, of um, Metro is. The reason that's significant is that that allowed the Board of Health to actually have a lot of oversight over the delivery of public health in the city. And so. Our realm involves everything that you typically imagine from vaccinations for childhoods, school nurses, you know, STD prevention, but then goes beyond and things that are kind of random when I realized when I joined is animal control, vehicle emissions, air quality, all that falls, and obviously the food safety stuff, all falls under um, the Department of Health and the Board of Health. There's about seven, 800 employees. And that's kind of our day-to-day job. So once a month, you go to a meeting, you hear everything that's going on. And as the chair of the board, you know, for me, it's really important as the chair of any organization I've chaired is I don't believe the board often needs to be in the day-to-day operations. Well, this COVID um, thing happened. It became very clear that this would have to be a different response and, and a different interaction between a board that meets once a month and the director and the entire department than, than anything else we've experienced. So that's kind of how I, as the chair of the Board of Health, then became the chair of the Mayor's Coronavirus Task Force. And, and I think part of that, again, as I mentioned, we had a new director who had just moved here from New York, didn't know anyone. And obviously, we didn't have time to have all the introductions. We needed to have really hit the ground running. And, and within a few days, we had all of our health systems leaders on board. And, and we really started developing a, a plan within the first couple of days after this virus hit our, our city. And when I was doing homework on you, I thought this was fascinating. And this might not be the case today, but when you first joined the board, you were the only member of the board that had actually received services from that organization as a child, right? That's absolutely right. As you mentioned in your intro, I'm, or maybe in, I'm a, I immigrated to Nashville with my family when I was six years old. And when we came to um, Nashville, again, this community took us in. That's what I really um, love about this community. Part of the reason I came back. And yeah, I would get my vaccinations. I would get dental work. That's what the health department did is for people like me who, who maybe couldn't have gotten it through other ways. And so it really was a really unique, unique perspective as I started helping make strategic decisions for the department over the past several years. 
And, and so going back to, to where we, we left off with when you got the phone call from Mayor Cooper, what was your first thought internally when you got that phone call? <laughs> and and did you put, give some context around what COVID, what the state of affairs were at the time globally when you got that call? Well, well Frank, so here's the situation. It's really interesting. So it was, like I said, March 7th is a Saturday night is when the first case of COVID came into the city. And, um, I, I was having, we had some friends over for dinner with their kids and so forth. And I got a call from two people at the health department who, you know, maybe a little unusual to call me, but they were, you know, it's, it's not unheard of. So I took the call and they said, Hey, we got this thing, this case of this case, you should need to come and you got to kind of keep it quiet. And, I, <laughs> and I, I was like, okay. So I go back into the dinner and I sit there and my wife can tell very quickly that I'm, I'm very distracted. And so the next day when we, when first time I met the mayor, I think all of us recognized this was, this was a, a lot of unknown. You know, if you got to remember at that point, Nashville had just had been hit with a really big um, tornado. In fact, I think it was the sixth worst tornado in the history of this region. It caused like one point something billion dollars worth of damage. And, and so the mayor was really working on that crisis um, crisis response. And then we started this other thing. And I think the mayor's office recognized, because after that that Sunday meeting, um, as I mentioned on that Wednesday, I brought all the health system leaders together. On Thursday, I had it sketched out what I thought would be a good all-metro response. And so uh, Friday is when the mayor's office asked me to meet with the mayor. And I met with him that morning. And, and he, you know, he, he said, I need, I need somebody that will always be honest with me as well as with the public and let's go. I mean, there really, I, I think there was no blueprint, right? There was no blueprint federally. There was no blueprint state. Definitely was no blueprint on a local level. You know, we had done a few things around, like recently there was a hepatitis A outbreak a few months before. I mean, those are the types of things we did. Nobody was prepared for what we've now done. Yeah. So that's exactly kind of where I want to dig in because the issue here is we're recording August 6th. The Delta variant is is spiking across the world. This won't air probably for a few weeks or or longer. And so this situation is changing so much. I don't want to get too much into what is going on with Delta, et cetera, because I right. think it's, it's going to continue to change, obviously. But I really want to unpack, like, what were the first 30 days like? What were the, what, what was the plan? And looking back on it, you know, what, what do you think you got right? And what do you think you got wrong? Yeah. So I think there was, there was a couple of things I've, I've replied to that. So one thing is I was, I believe I was very fortunate that my training as a trauma surgeon allowed me the opportunity to deal with crises better than maybe others. So I get a lot, oftentimes there's a lot of critique. Oh, well, he's not an infectious disease doctor. He's not, they didn't need an infectious disease doctor per se to lead a response. You needed somebody who can handle crises. And more important than that is you also need somebody to recognize that he or she alone couldn't handle this entire crisis. So very early on, I became very close and partners with Chief Will Swan, who's the Chief of National Fire and the Office of Emergency Management, Chief Jay Survey, also with Office of Emergency Management. And and we got together and we and they said, well, what do we need? And again, as I mentioned, we brought this medical team together early. I mean, the health systems and, and I, we realized that what we needed to do is, first of all, set testing centers. We need to set up a place for people to get information. We had need to set up a place for our, our homeless individuals to have a place to be safe. And so the emergency, the first 30 days literally was this, this making this blueprint and, and making, and I hate the analogy, making a fly plane as you fly, but it really was this, we were going, we were probably about a week um, behind 
some of the other cities that have been hit. So we would watch on the, they had a huge screen OEM, you know, maybe a 20, 30 foot screen. And we watch videos of drive-through testing sites that are backed up for eight hours and try to process engineer how the heck we don't end up there. So operations was key. And the big first part of that was getting PPE, getting these testing sites set up. The second part of it that I learned very quickly, again, uh, Brian, you and I know each other, but I'm not a public person prior to this, right? I'm a orthopedic surgeon who I mean, maybe had 100 Twitter followers from friends from like college, right? I, this, I'm not, this is not my thing, but I learned very quickly that this was as much of it was a crisis response. You also need a crisis management communications side of it. And so one of my first asks of the, of the mayor's office was to really build a team of communications people around me to help me and, and the mayor and, and everyone else involved in this response to communicate to, the, to Nashville what we were doing, how we were doing it, be transparent. That was one of our biggest mantras and, and guiding lights. And um, for the most part, I, I'm, I'm, we've now done hundreds of press conferences. I think we did 101 in, like press conferences. I've done probably thousands of, of media hits subsequent to that, websites, social media, and it mattered. And, and I think that might have made our response a little better. Now, by no means is our response done right. And, and there was times when we would make certain decisions that very quickly we realized was the wrong decision. And one of the things that I think we could have done better earlier, and, and I think we've, we've subsequently improved on, is our outreach predominantly to our immigrant population here in Nashville, in the Southeast. We tried to be diligent around African-American groups. We probably could have done a little better, but really the, the immigrant and non-English speaking individuals initially were really hurt because a lot of those individuals also were what we call the essential workers, right? They worked at the Tyson plant in, in, in north of Nashville. They worked in restaurants, constructions, housekeeping, all these things that we all needed. And these individuals couldn't, they could not go to work because they, they needed the income to have housing security. But we didn't do a good job communicating to them. We didn't get a job giving them resources to protect themselves and their loved ones. And um, that that's probably one of our biggest early failures that I still to this day really have learned a lot from. And do you feel like you got support and it was a team on the metro level in terms of nashville davidson county in, in what way i'm sorry in, in terms of like did did mayor cooper understand the severity of the situation and were you you mentioned oem that's office of emergency yeah. management i used to live right near there in 12 south do you feel like the response was robust enough in bringing everybody to the table that needed to be at the table initially yeah well it was really um I think it, it, the mayor made it very clear early on that we were going to do it all in government response. So one, and one thing you may not remember, Nashville was one of the first cities in the Southeast, if not the first city, to do a safer at home order. That was something that nobody had ever even contemplated. We pulled that together in about four or five hours. So first Saturday, I told you about Friday, I was named the person. That Friday press conference was one of the most difficult experiences I've ever had in the media. It was really tough. Right. And so we got a communications team that began meeting on Sunday. That Sunday, very senior people, communication people said, well, if you want crisis management, you got one brewing right now. And that was the, that Saturday night. We, Nashville was trending on TMZ um, and other social media about it. The bars were packed and the crisis was was really revving up. And so we five hours later literally had, had Metro Legal Health police. I mean, you can imagine every entity of government that needed to needed to um, be involved, we placed the first safe home order. We were the first to put the first mask mandates in the Southeast. 
we were on the, we are the first to, once vaccination started, I'm jumping way ahead, the first to vaccinate, give 100% access to vaccines for our homeless population. That wasn't done by OEM alone or me alone. That was done by all those entities, human rights coalitions. I mean, there's so much other nonprofits. I mean, this whole city has come together. The national strong model motto you hear about, like I saw it in real life. And, and that was fascinating to me. And how do you compare that response with the support and the response you got on the state and federal level at that time? So when this when this um, crisis started, I will tell you the state um, the state partnership with us has been great. And I think I think a lot of people want to try to divide, like say, oh, you guys are a blue blue whatever in the red state. Is it the, the the Tennessee Department of Health has been a great partner. The TEMA has been a great partner. Um, the governor's office, great partner. One of the one of the stories I like to share is, you know, we had these testing sites set up, ready to go, PPE personnel everything. The one thing we didn't have is that literally the swab that goes up your nose to um, swab swab the people. And the governor had called the mayor and me, they invited me to, to meet with him and his team to kind of talk about the response. And he just kind of looked at it. He's like, so you, I see you've these, got these tents set up. Why are you not using them? And I told him, well, we don't have the swabs. And, and the governor, and I'd never met the governor up until that point. I um, mean, you could tell he was annoyed. And the state had agreed to pay for the testing. So I want to I want to say like this state had had and that, that was probably the most extensive component of like, you know, team OEM and all that got the tents. But the state set paid for the testing. The governor, after that meeting, literally within five minutes, called the lab that the state was now paying uh, money to and said, why are you not getting this nasal swab? Governor then got on his helicopter. He had a meeting in Memphis, flew to Memphis on his helicopter, picked up the swabs and flew them back. So our very first 3,000 swabs were literally traveled with the governor back from Memphis. And I think that was that's one story of many I could share that that the state and local partnership was really strong. Now, when it comes to the federal government, I'll be honest, I, I believe the federal government at the beginning of this crisis failed the American people and failed our state and failed our city. There are things that they did really well, like Operation Warp Speed, amazing. Like, I mean, I, I think you have to give credit where it's due. But early on, there was a lot of confusion, a lot, not a lot of guidance. We had to make guidance for schools ourselves. We had to figure out how to, I mean, it just, but but again, that's, that's neither here nor there now. But at the time, I believe the federal response was not appropriate. State did the best they could, and I'm grateful for them. I think we have done the best we could. Federal response could have started out stronger. Again, I think Operation Warp Speed and how we got vaccines out is really remar- remarkable. I think the current administration has done a, a, a reasonable job in responding as well. But again, they weren't there at the very beginning when everything you know went to hell, frankly. And, and how do you, with the benefit of hindsight, explain the fact that the, the federal government was almost speaking out of both sides of its mouth, because I agree, Operation Warp Speed, incredible in the context of history, what they're able to accomplish. And now we're, you know, leading the world in vaccine, vaccines. But at the same time, from a policy perspective and a, almost a lack of communication, how, how do you explain that now that looking back on it? You know, here's, here's a lesson I've, I've learned, and it's going to sound, and I don't mean this to say, but people aren't dumb. I, I think one mistake anyone who is in, in the public eye, I think, can make, and, and again, I'm far from being an expert in the public eye, is you're not the smartest person in the room. And you're definitely not the smartest person speaking on a podium. And I think when people try to spin, others see it and, and recognize that quickly. And I believe there was probably a lot of spin that was occurring at, uh, at the highest level of government, when in reality, 
if, if you had come in kind of what we tried to do at the local level, say, listen, we don't have all the answers. This thing's serious. Let's all, you know, just suck it up, work together and, and get through this. And, and I think that would have people have been more understanding of that. Right. That's my opinion. I think that, that was one of the biggest things. But then because there's a lot of admiration for presidents, whether it's President Trump, President Biden, that a lot of people will do whatever the president says. And, and I think everything subsequently comes from that. And, and now on a local level, again, jumping to vaccines, people no longer need the talking head of me to get a vaccine. They need local leaders, pastors, community organizers, community centers, people under social network to, to lead and speak to why it's important to get a vaccine. And, and if they're, they have the wrong messenger, then, then we're going to fail now. Um, just like I think we failed on the front end because at, at the front end, people were looking at the highest spokesperson. So I want to talk about the, the vaccine rollout. And obviously, there's a, <laughs> we're going to skip a bunch of time between you know that first press conference you have until the vaccine started rolling in. What did that look like in, in terms of the first day you get the vaccines or, or leading up to when you're actually going to get them? And and what was the plan? And again, I'm going to ask the same question. Looking back on it, what do you think you got right with the vaccine rollout? And what do you think you got wrong? You know, um, I have to brag about my public health. So I'll just speak. I'll speak to the public health department part. Um, sure. I think the health systems also did did a um, a, a good job. And I, and I think that should be credit. But I'm really proud of the men and women in the public health department that 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 really plan for the vaccines. Here's here's what we did right. Our department in July, so March of COVID, COVID hits, you know, within 47 days of, of when the, we had the gene sequence for COVID, people were already starting clinical trials. So it is fascinating to see the, what happens when you put out a lot of money and every resource and take out red tape, how, how the world can do great things. And I think this is, again, to think of a better example than this vaccines um, that have come out um, of what happens when a bunch of people row in the same direction and you take away bureaucracy. So that's my little soapbox on that. But what we did right is we recognized in June and July, hey, the vaccines that seem to be having success are those that really are cold stored, like need like minus 80 degrees sub sub temperatures. So as a department, we started buying, we started buying that. We started buying the bunch of those fridge freezers, knowing that we may we may have made a wrong bet, which we did not, because when people finally realized you needed them, they're all sold out. But so that was one of the first things we did right. Then again, we kind of started getting a sense the vaccines were going to come out of December. Start working with the state real closely to get an idea, because at the end of the day, the federal government sends to the state, and the state would send it to us. They didn't come directly to us. So we started developing those relationships with the state, which again very positive. I can't speak higher than that about what the state's partnership with us was. Then we said, all right, we're going to, again, got a sense We that 75 and older. And then we stood up, we made it easy. We set up a system in Lentz and we we took away all the fancy stuff. We just had paper and, and, and pencil and like initially, I mean, granted you can't backstate 339,000 people, which we now have on paper and pencil alone. But initially, literally when you had 500 names and we just did it that way. And and we really, we had process engineers and we had people who everyone, all hands on deck, like the communications guy would be checking people in. Like it would, no, I would give shots. I would wheel people back and forth. Everyone was on deck. So that led us to go from there to the Music City Center that we set up, which was an amazingly run operation, vaccinated 117,000 people. The, the commissioner of health once challenged me to do a large event with Johnson and Johnson and with their support and, and our idea 
um, was to do the Nissan Stadium thing. We had great partners in, in Nissan and the Titans, right? They allowed us that huge parking lot. We did 10,000 vaccines in one day. Uh, and now we've done 350 pop-up vaccines events all around the city. What people forget is there's these super cold storage things that you have to have. You can't just take the vaccine in a cooler. And so, and then if you look at the fiasco, what happened in Memphis, where I, I don't if you want to go back a few months ago or many months ago now, shots were lost, expired. People weren't supposed to get them, got them. Um, we had somebody who p- sweated the details and had supply chain experience who had they had limited access to the freezer. I mean, there's just all the things you go through business school learning about supply chain. I mean, we actually follow those rules. And so I think we did that really well. I mean, there's always probably lessons learned. I mean, I'd love to pick up our pace, but we're on we're on the same we have we vaccinate the same percentage as the national average here in Nashville. So actually, I think we're doing well as a city. I'm, I'm 10 points higher than the state. So I'm really proud of where we are. What about the manner in which the state distributed the vaccines on a county level? I think initially the state was trying to be rightfully so equitable based on population sizes. But then they quickly, I don't know, quickly, they, they, they started then recognizing, you know what, we need to go more supply and demand. Like they never wanted to not have vaccine available people wanted in a rural county. But listen, I think everyone's probably listening to this and most people who paid any attention to news recognize there's a there's a inequity of of people wanting it. And and so we wanted it, we got it, and I'm grateful for the state for hitting a point where we're saying, all right, we want everyone to have it equally, but we recognize that there's a lot more people wanted in Nashville than random county. And so, and random county has hundreds that keep expiring. So again, that's leadership. That's making those decisions that again, maybe politically harder, but definitely smarter. And did you, within the the COVID task force, did you foresee an issue of a tipping point at some point coming where the supply would outstrip the demand and it would start to become more of a marketing effort to get people to take up the vaccine? You know, you always think, yeah, you would hit it, but I think we hit hit it sooner than I gave it credit for. When we were looking at mandates, you know, the point of uh, public health mandates, so mask mandates, limiting gatherings and so forth, is these are interventions that are made to be put in place until there's an easy, effective, and accessible intervention to keep to mitigate the virus, right, which is the vaccine. So we had these all our mandates, and we anticipated that we would have to wait a little longer before those came down because we want to make sure everyone who wanted a vaccine had the opportunity to get it before we said, all right, we're, we're back to somewhat normal. That happened much sooner than we thought, which is fine. I mean, that's the reality of it is. And that's why we kind of, I think, got rid of a lot of our mandates and stuff sooner than I think anyone anticipated. But I knew eventually we'd hit that point. I really would have hoped that it was it would have been a little later than we hit it. Not necessarily in time, because I'm glad we're over a lot of that stuff. But I wish we had more people get what they needed and sooner. So. And did you anticipate the vaccination issue being so politicized? Nope, absolutely not. But but I think it goes back to one of my statements I made earlier. People listen to leaders. And whether that leader is is a president, a, a governor, a pastor, leadership matters. And and I think I think our entire society, I don't know why people feel that division is so so fun and so important. And I think there's certain there's a few people that really do it. And then they, they, they know how to manipulate the, the system. And I think that's what troubles me, whether it's vaccinations, whether it's masks. I mean, I think civility is something that, if you ask me a lesson I've learned over the past 18 months, we need, we need to re-engage in civility. And, and that's something that, that, I mean, literally people are 
dying now because they somebody somewhere said you're an idiot for getting a vaccine. I had a I had a friend that who I hadn't talked to in years called me this past weekend. He lives in Virginia, and he wanted to get some legitimate questions about the vaccine. He's, he's, he's an executive um, for a large you know international company. Like not he's a very smart guy, and he had hit a point now where he didn't feel comfortable talking to anyone about the vaccine because half the people he talked to would would ostracize him for not having gotten the vaccine and, and say that he's nuts. The other half would ostracize him for wanting to get the vaccine and saying he's nuts. And this really successful, smart person just wanted to find someone to talk to to answer some of his very legitimate hesitancy questions, right? And and that's a problem. And if 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 you have good people who are hesitant to, talk, to even ask a simple question that could save their lives. And and that worries me. And and so, no, I, I, I didn't anticipate the politicization as much as it has. And I hope that maybe that maybe that was temporary. Now people are seeing that their loved ones are dying, their friends are dying, their people they respect in society and community are dying or getting really ill. I hope we move on beyond it. And do you think the anti-vaxxer community existed pre-COVID, but it seems to have developed very quickly within the context of COVID itself? What do you think it is about this moment of time in particular versus, you know, say the 50s, 60s, 70s, that all of a sudden people were so wary of vaccines? You know, it's interesting you say it in that terms. I um, just yesterday came across a Tennessean, if you don't live here in Nashville, Tennessean is a the local paper cartoon from the 50s. And it was an article. It was an article written by a young reporter called John Sigenthaler, named John Sigenthaler, who, as, as you all may know, became a very prominent reporter. But this is a '56. It was an early article, and he talks about the resistance to the polio vaccine in rural communities. And it's a fascinating, fascinating article. Funny enough, one of the doctors they named was my current practice partner's um, like great uncle. So weird national connection, but but. Some of these hesitancies that existed now or exist now were verbalized back then too, right? The, the difference is it's so easy for everyone to hit thousands of people and millions of people. And um, and again, I do believe there's a less civility now than even back then. Like back then, you may whisper to your loved ones, hey, don't get the vaccine. It's for whatever reason. But now you call your neighbor an idiot for getting them. Or you literally accost me in public, which has happened multiple times because I'm trying to advocate for a vaccine. I want to be very clear. I'm very much pro-choice and so forth. If if that is your choice to an extent, like I think everyone should be vaccinated. But if there's a real reason you're not getting vaccinated, but don't put my kids in jeopardy right now. And I think until the kids are able to be vaccinated, we need to be more careful about how we proceed in, in society. Once my kids are vaccinated, and I will do our best to make vaccines available. But at a certain point, I think there are you have to be responsible for your decisions. But don't ostracize me because I believe this is the best thing for society, frankly, and my family. Uh, and and I won't ever ostracize someone. Like I won't ever, you know, won't yell at someone. I won't, but I will. But if but I think people need to just think for themselves too. I think that's the difference. Is now and others think for them, and it's so easy to get misinformation. So do you think it's part of a context of a, of a broader distrust of the scientific community? I think, I mean, all the same people have phones and they drive really nice cars and they do other science stuff. I think for whatever reason, so people just, I don't know, they, they want to politicize certain individuals in their scientific community or they want to, I mean, I don't, I don't, I, I mean, if I knew the answer, I'd, I'd, I'd try to fight to change it. Right. I, I don't fully get it, but I think people like 
they say, well, if, if Joe Biden's supporting this, then this has got to be bad because I don't like Joe Biden. Or if Donald Trump's supporting this, this has got to be bad because I don't like Donald Trump. That's nuts. I mean, literally, that is, you know, whether it's, you know, the monoclonal antibodies that the president received when he got sick, saved his life. Like People need to know that that's what he got so they can have their lives saved. Don't not get it because Donald Trump got it. Same thing with the vaccine. I don't know. I mean, I, I just think it's a weird place we are in society. I hope it's not a good place long term for us to continue being the great society that we have been in this country. How scary was it at the height of the surge here in Nashville for you, especially being at Vanderbilt? So Christmas time, I was the chief of staff on call, which at the hospital, you're the uh, person who takes the calls when trying to transfer people in. And I remember I got a few calls from as far as like Virginia and, and other side of Atlanta. And these people had called like 20 other places trying to get people into the hospital and they and they couldn't. And we didn't have room for them. Like we were I mean, I, literally, I mean, there was no sort of coming into my own personal office. There was no place to put patients. And, and we're not talking just COVID patients, right? I mean, people had abdominal issues, chest issues. But you couldn't safely have them in in a hospital, and uh, you couldn't add. It's just there's a certain capacity, and 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 I had to decline, and other twenty other hospitals had to decline, and I and I it hit me, and I looked at my wife, I said, there are a lot of people that are dying now because we literally have now hit a point in our our healthcare system, one of the best healthcare systems in 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 the country, frankly, in this region. That I mean, if you have people from the other side of Virginia wanting to come down here, this is bad. And that, and that worried me a lot. It really, really, really worried me. And it worried me, and then especially towards the, the Christmas time, what worried me in a weird way is I knew we were so close to getting a vaccine. And I'd consider it a failure if I or one of my family members ended up getting sick right before vaccine. And so that, that haunted me for about a month, if I'm being honest. And how does it compare with what's happening with Delta now? Well, it's the same thing, except this time the worry is for my kids, right? I, I I believe you're an adult and you choose not to get a vaccine and you get ill. I mean, I, I hope that you don't get, I, I mean, I never wish, I don't want anyone to get ill and I don't want anyone to die. But I think you're, if you're an adult and you made certain decisions, it's, it's your prerogative. I, I never believe I should, I should be one to get in the way of that. But it's what my kids I worry about. And what I also worry about is with the long COVID that you hear about when there's mental fog afterwards, cardiac issues, pulmonary issues. What are the implications to this to society, to our workforce? I, I don't know. And, and I worry about this um, a lot. And that's why, I, again, very personal. I don't want my kids to get it because I don't want, I want, you always want to give your kid the best opportunity to succeed in life. And I don't want COVID to be a reason they don't succeed for some weird reason. How much longer are you going to do this? <laughs> you must be tired, right? Oh, man. So I guess I'll share this. I, I had a, I literally had a meeting with the mayor yesterday. I'd scheduled a long time ago. And the topic of the discussion was going to be the transition out. And and now, I mean, I, I'm I'm very supportive of, of, of I'll partner with the mayor as long as he'll want me. As long as um, it makes sense, I'll, if I can help our community, I will continue to do it. By no means is me in isolation. I get that. But I don't know. I, I think it's too, it's not, the, it wasn't yesterday, which my initial plan would be that it was going to be yesterday. Literally, I'm not, not even exaggerating. I don't know. I, I, I hope that Delta gets people in check a little bit so that they get the vaccine or maybe it burns through real quickly because it's so transmittable and we just just dies itself out i don't know i i, I don't know man it is it has been exhausting i think for all of us and all all of us have wanted to just be over this and definitely no different than the rest yeah there's there's certainly some fatigue and along those lines is this something that we're just going and i know you're not infectious disease guy but i mean is this something we just live with 
Yeah, forever? I think I think it, I probably the the you know there's a lot of coronaviruses that we deal with all the time. Most of them it's called the common cold. And assuming that we get to a level of immunity that this thing doesn't mutate again to become really deadly again and again and again and again. I would think that, yeah, this would be something that just evolves. And maybe we get just like a flu shot, an annual booster shot. I don't know yet, right? There's talks of boosters being um, made available in the next few months. I will say I will get one if I, if and when one is approved. I don't know. I mean, I, I would think so. I don't see how it just dies away if, if it continues to have a vector to transmit through through unvaccinated people. What are resources that people can access if they want good information, up-to-speed information, and to educate themselves about what's going on? There are, yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you want to find a vaccine, vaccines.gov tells you where to get a vaccine, vaccines.gov. Another organization, the Ad Council has put together a really nice site, getvaccineanswers.org. Again, getvaccineanswers, one word, .org has a lot of good information about um, that you may ask, like around vaccines, around COVID. Um, I think those are great sites. But then CDC site has a lot of good ideas uh, about how to interact with businesses, schools. And then talk to your local healthcare provider, talk to um, friends, families. Don't talk to random talking heads on TV that don't know what the heck they're talking about. So that's why. But vaccines.gov and go get vaccineanswers.org are probably two. And then the other thing, as I suspect most of your listeners like a lot of data, covidactnow.org and covidactnow.org is a great website that gives you literally county county information and ranks you as far as disease activity, vaccination rates. It's a, it's one of my favorite websites I use. So that as well. Well, thank you for all of that. And thank you for all the work that you put in over the last 18 months plus. I know it's been stressful to say the least, but I know as a, as a resident of Davidson County and somebody who knows you personally, I'm thankful that you've been doing the best you can to try to keep everyone safe here in Nashville. So uh, you've got to, to run <laughs> to another meeting. You're the man who never sleeps. But I want to thank you for taking the time to coming on and, and talking to us a little bit about the experience that you went through and hopefully providing people with some information that they can use to make safe choices in their lives. So thank you for having me. This is really fun. Okay. Thanks, Alex. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.